We become a race of peeping Toms. Something happened. Something was happening. I had no idea. Where is her treacherous husband now? But in a place where she can visit if she wished. Mine! It's with the ancestors! I'm yeah, I'm drinking, Luann. How can you hold cake and not eat it? Oh, shit, you guys got coke here. Oh, my God, of course. I mean, I know to you I'm just your old fat Aunt Maddie Faye. I'm more than that, sweetheart. These are godless times, Mrs. Snell. You're all feckin' boring. With your piddling grievances over nothing, you're all feckin' boring! Hello and welcome to another episode of the Best Supporting Podcast, a podcast dedicated to celebrating and dissecting the performances of our favorite Best Supporting Actresses. My name is Nick Kachanov, and you can't fire me. You don't even know my name. And my name is Colin Drucker, and I have things you know. Ooh, I don't even remember that quote. Who said it? I believe that was Margaret when they were taking her away and she needed to oh, pack yes. up her office. Oh, great. Know, I have, maybe, and I probably got the inflection wrong. I think it was more of like, I have things, you know. You know, that's a little more Parker yeah. Posey. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. Yes. But um, a great choice, nonetheless. My, my, I, I, and I switched last minute because otherwise it was going to be, take a memo, Barbara. Also, Ooh, yes. <laughs> also Parker Posey. Yeah. Yeah, she has some great lines, but not my favorite character, but so many things to talk about in this yes, movie. Yes, I agree. I agree. Maybe not my favorite character, but one I greatly appreciated in her little clogs, her little 90s clogs. Yes, yes. And if you are curious, dear listener, where to see those little 90s clogs, it would be in none other than 1997's Clock Watchers, uh, written and directed, well, directed by uh, Jill Sprecher and written and directed by Jill and her sister Karen. Written Love by that. Jill and her sister Karen. Y'all know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jill and Karen did it. <laughs> yeah, Jill and Karen. Blame them. Yeah. Now, refresh my memory. Had you seen this movie before or it was something you just always had on your list? I have. This is... I know that Johnny and I did a Matreon on, on Clockwatchers years ago. Like, oh, no way. Very pre-pandemic. So I don't even remember that episode. But I think before that, and I could be wrong, but I've always associated Clockwatchers with a movie that I saw in high school or maybe college when I was home on break on the independent film channel. Ooh, IFC. Did you, ha did you grow up with the independent film channel on your television? I don't think I, I mean, I don't remember it from like an early cataloging year by any mean or those years, but I, was that the, was, um, was Portlandia on that channel? Did I make that up? You know, I, I think swear it, it, it may have been in the later, later years. Life. Yeah, yeah. But as far as earlier years, no, I, I, I don't remember it. If I had it, I don't remember or I wasn't watching. Yeah. I feel like that is a rabbit hole I need to go down is the uh the early years or at least the like late 90s early 2000s era of the independent film channel which i keep call i won't even call ifc because i feel like they didn't even call it ifc then but it yeah. was it was so it was like the cool cinema nerd of tv channels and yes. i feel like there was so much on there that I didn't understand or was like definitely like above my head, but just being exposed to its existence kind of made space in my catalog to eventually see it. And so at some point in all of that cataloging and pre-cataloging with the independent film channel, I came across Clock Watchers and 
I, it just always, the feel of it, the energy of it, the kind of quiet kind of, it almost has like the low hum of an office light the entire time that always just stuck with me as, I don't know, even a movie you could fall asleep to, you know? Oh, for sure. Speaking of which, Keon was, um, was uh, gung-ho to watch this with me and we turned it on last night and he fell asleep like 10 minutes in, but he kept waking up and then he would come back and he was like, what was that movie about? Because if you do wake up at different parts of this movie, it does take a turn. It's like, yes. he's like, why is she doing that? Um, but I think it's, uh, you're, you're right. It's like, there are some really beautiful shots in this movie, like especially at the beginning too, like the colors of the walls, just mm-hmm. like the way that it's um, uh, like the art direction of it. I, I, I wish they leaned into it, like maybe even a little bit more too. But I, I, I think I was like, where is this movie going? I was it, it felt meandering at the beginning. But then I was like, was that intentional? Like just like establishing like the hierarchy of these temps and meeting everyone, too. I just wanted something like some plot to happen or something exciting to happen. But it's also like, that's the story that they're trying to tell because work fucking sucks. Like nothing happens until something did. I think that's exactly it. I yeah. think that is so, the the energy of this movie and, and like the moral of it is that in the world of these four women and in the world of offices and certainly in the world of being a clock watching temp, it's like yeah. nothing happens and then nothing happens and then nothing happens and then something happens. And I, I suppose because I am intimate, intimately <laughs> familiar with the experience of being a temp and watching the clock for five o'clock. I yeah. deeply identified with the first, you know, half hour of this movie, and but I get it. It does, it does, kind of act more as a character piece than a narrative until you know money gets stolen about forty minutes in, and yeah. I guess the upside is like, but at least the character piece is so brilliantly well cast. Oh yeah, I mean these four women. I I was so ex- you you talked about it last week too, but then I you know as the movie unfolded, I was like, oh, this is such a motley crew of women from the late '90s that I would love to see together, and so enjoyed seeing together. It really is, especially I mean, especially now. So and you know, and and let's get into it. So clock watchers, because. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about this cast. I want to talk about who they were, who they are now, who pops up in the supporting characters. Uh, but indeed, it is about Iris, played by Tony Collette, uh, a mid twenty-two years old. I know. Is that cr- I, I like what a baby. Ugh, what a baby. Yeah, I mean, like three years after Muriel's wedding. I feel it was. I feel yes. like Muriel's wedding was ninety-four. I think. I think. I think you're right. Yeah. And and feeling very Muriel. Iris is kind of the yes. California Muriel Heslop has her first temp job. Yes, yes. And and it's so I mean, like, I think especially now, all of the roles we've seen Tony Collette in, all of the uh the twenty sevens that she's gone to, I it makes me more and more appreciate when she's doing one of when she's doing an Iris or a Muriel, it's like, oh, you're doing some real character work here, Tony. Yeah, I feel like it's almost, you know, I only have Muriel's Wedding and this to go off of as far as her early career, but it, it, she captures that so well. You just want to scoop her up and take her to lunch, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. It's like I just, 
I care about her more than I pity her, but I pity her a little bit, you know? Sure. Yes, yes, yes. I totally agree. So Meek Little Iris is a temp at this, you know, one, some credit, global credit associates or something like that. One of those, I don't know what they do, but when you're a temp, you don't really know what the company does. You're just pushing papers. Yep. And so she's a temp in this office and she uh, is quickly befriended by Margaret, played by the aforementioned Parker Posey, who is, I mean... I feel like I have definitely had this kind of work friend before and maybe just this kind of friend in life who has kind of a, you know, devil may care attitude, doesn't really care about authority, walks around with the coffee cup, kind of acts like she owns the place, even though she's not even renting. And if you get too close to her, you'll probably also get in trouble at some point. Yeah, it's such an interesting dynamic because she is Queen Bee, a, a very Stasi energy. Mm, um, yeah, you don't you don't question her, you you go along with it until like you know until everyone didn't, which is you know I feel like I'm jumping ahead by even saying that too, but I would have you know I feel this could have very very easily been like a Janine Garofalo type of role too. Absolutely. Different oh, vibe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. But like, I feel like all of the same era. Like, Janine Garofalo, I think, has worn this exact same outfit in another movie in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And so she also meets, uh, you know, from the, the temp pool, she also meets Paula, played by Lisa Kudrow. Ah, uh, fresh-faced as well. 31 years old. The same year Friends came out. So I love the line... You know, she's an actress. She says, you know, it's just a matter of time before I get discovered, you know? And lo and behold, she did. Yeah. So I thought, because I thought Friends came out in like, and listen, I am no one to question Friends, certainly you, but I thought it came out in like 94. Oh, you're right. You know, when I was doing this math is I think 94 was in my head because of Muriel's wedding. So you're right. My timeline is off. That's, you know, but and the only reason I, I bring it up is because it's kind of what's interesting is where they all are in their careers when this movie came yeah, out. Yeah, three years into Friends. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and either right before or right after Romy and Michelle, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion came out. So, you oh, know, she yeah. was like that, you know, she wasn't in Analyze This yet, but, you know, the trajectory was on the up and up. Yeah, I've never seen Analyze This or I Analyze That. Or Analyze That. Yeah, I, ha- I yeah. don't think I have either. It's just one of those... It's one of those credits that she has where I'm like, oh, yeah, the Analyze movies. That's such an early 2000s thing. For sure. I feel like, and I know, like, the connection is, like, what, Robert De Niro, but I feel like Analyze This and, like, Meet the Parents is kind of the same. I don't know. I think of them as basically the the same movie, the same world. It's just, you know, Robert De Niro being difficult. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And like either Billy Crystal or Ben Stiller, like struggling to handle him. That's and then yeah. I assume Lisa Kudrow plays like the long-suffering wife. I don't even know. And I'll yeah, never I don't find know out. Either. Yeah, we won't. Uh, well, and she was also in uh, to bring up something we talked quite a bit about last week. She was also in twenty-four episodes of Mad About You. Oh yeah. Yeah, because I feel like she had a story. She or wait, did she get fired from Mad About You and then she got cast on Frasier, or was the opposite way? I feel like because I I just remember watching like some sort of interview with her. I can't I think, remember. 
I think she got she got fired from Frasier or didn't get picked for Frasier, but then she yeah. did get on because Man About You came out in ninety two. Um but yeah, so she you know, she just kinda hopped through the the sitcom juggernauts of the nineties till she got to yep. friends. Um love that. But yeah, in this she plays, as you said, an aspiring, you know, she says performer. And I kind of always thought it was actress, but I guess it's technically singer, but maybe both. Uh, and maybe the whole point is there's she's she's not an aspiring anything because she doesn't get any yep. parts. Yes, which I love. But I feel like there is so much in this that is pre-Valerie Cherish, Valerie Cherish. Oh, yes. There's something about like the way she kind of like talks with her teeth open, you know, and says, uh -huh. you know, like just like that sort of like cadence and rhythm. Yes, I was laughing as she said it. Yes, it's it was just it was crazy. I felt like she was because I know that Valerie Cherish is based on a Groundlings character that she did of like your favorite sitcom actress. And so uh -huh. I feel like there's at least some kind of country cousin from to Valerie and Paula. But indeed, some of those same inflections where she'd be like, yeah, right. Huh? Right. Yeah. Yes. Like yeah. Right, that whole thing. Right. Right. I mean, that whole bus scene was basically Valerie. Oh yeah. I mean, I think if I was to go back and watch this again, I'd pay closer attention to her in this yeah. movie. To Paula. Yeah. Camille I, Laplante. Camille <laughs> Laplante. What a ninety oh, stage oh, name. Yeah. It's the worst. And then she also meets uh, Jane, played by Alana Ubach, uh, who I yes. this is I think not long after her. Uh, her turn in the the Brady Bunch movie as uh, Marsha's little lesbian friend. Oh yeah, she's great. I I'm so I was so glad to see her. I I didn't love her character, but that's not her fault. Right. Like I think she, her Jane is basically like a nervous lemur the entire movie. Yeah, she's. I just was so worried for her, and I guess I'm used to her that sort of like manic energy she usually brings to every mm -hmm. role I've seen her in. Um, she has a good rasp, though. She um, does. Not in this movie, but like it's, yeah, I, when I think of her, I think of rasp. And she has been in, I mean, I, I mentioned the Brady Bunch movie, but like I'm looking through her IMDb filmography and she has been in so many things. I always think of like Alana Ubach, like, oh, when are they going to cast her in something? The woman doesn't stop working. Yeah, she was in The Flight Attendant. I don't remember that. Was it in like... Did I ever finish oh, season two? Who knows? Yes, she was. I think she played one of the other flight attendants. She played like maybe like the head flight attendant that Kelly Cuoco was, you know, contending oh. with. Like, I kind of remember that. I think she was like a, you know, a, a nemesis in the sky. I love that. Now, of course, I also love that Alana Yubak was the mom, Suze, Susie in Euphoria. She played wow. uh, uh, Sydney Sweeney and uh, Maud Maud uh, Apatow's mother in Euphoria. No way! I mean, I haven't watched, but is she great? Is she oh, good? Oh my god! It's in a way, it's like because I I haven't been obviously keeping up with Alana Ubach's like nonstop career over the past twenty years. I kind of saw her role in Euphoria as like finally. Alana Yubak is getting the moment she deserves, but like, yes, she is in a show that is just full of spectacle. She is like such BSA energy. She's so good in Euphoria. Whoa, she has really been in everything. I'm, I'm. She's, she was in Sister Act two. I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. I can picture her in that. She was in ER, the Brady Bunch movie, um, Party of Five, like. 
the woman has worked. Yeah. I'm so proud of wow. her. Wow. Yeah. I know. It's 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 really crazy. And she was also in there was a movie that um oh she was in Legally Blonde too. She played Serena, which is mm-hmm. like one of Elle's like two best friends, I feel. And you know, it and the reason I think, you know, I know I'm kind of focusing on this is because it's like when I think of Tony Collette, Parker Posey, and Lisa Kudrow in 2023 and like what their careers have been since Clock Watchers. It's like, oh my God, they're just like they're such superstars and they're just, you know, in movies and TV and on on stage and like they're just such big names. And then I feel like, oh, and then there's Alana Ubach. And you know what? She's right there with them. Yeah. She's got the credits. She's got the credits. You know, She's I've got, got the receipt. meat, Jack. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I got the meat. <laughs> Uh, yes. Uh, and yes, yeah, so there you know, and I, I kind of I kind of love this that essentially, you know, certainly that first like, you know, little chunk of the movie is just these four, you know, girls in their maybe their late twenties, early thirties, temping at this office, becoming work friends, you know, going to that happy hour together, getting drinks, oh my Lord. eating lunch together. And I I love that. I remember that. I re- remember that feeling of like being a 20 something at work and making new work friends. I wish I could say the same, but my 20s was like doing theater and bullshit like that. So I I feel like I missed a little bit of that, but I I would imagine you know there's a correlation there. There's a Venn diagram of like just what it feels like to be sort of a young professional, I guess. Yeah, it it you know, it, it definitely there I think there's a feeling of I remember especially in like my first couple jobs, like my first job out of college and you are both a baby and a very responsible or expected to be a responsible adult at the same time. Like looking back, it's like no one was ever so young, you know, as me and my little work yes. friends at Condé Nast. And we were all like in our early twenties, it was, you know, there were, you know, probably like four or five of us and maybe six of us on total. And, you know, we'd have lunch together and we'd go out and we'd, you know, go out for drinks after work and we'd go out on Friday nights together. And my one friend, you know, she really fancied herself a bit of a Carrie Bradshaw because this was, this was 2007. So, you know, there was still that era where people were like, you know, doing that fantasy. And she was the kind of girl. And I, Maggie that was her name Maggie and she was the kind of girl who you know had a friend who was a promoter that could get us into a club in the meatpacking district and I was like what am Whoa. I doing <laughs> <laughs> okay see yeah yes. uh, I mean it was all none of it was my life I, but it was fun to have experienced it and what's crazy now is that when i think about those friends i think about kind of my own version of this little clatch you know maggie now lives in florida and has two kids and i don't really know what she does for work but um i think she might just she might just be a stay-at-home mom uh, which is a job. Uh, and then yes. uh, another girl, Ashley, there's always an Ashley. I mean, she was probably the most ambitious of all of us. And she's now a VP at some other company. And, oh, cool. you know, it's just, I think she's got some, some big old house in, you know, Westchester County or whatever. And whatever, like, good for you. I'm glad you've got yeah. a trajectory, Ashley. Uh, yeah, you got a man. What was yeah. that line that uh, Paula says? Nice flowers. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, nice flowers. Nice flowers. Must be nice to have like a boyfriend. 
What are you? What are you so? What are you so dark about? You got a man. Must be nice. Yeah, that's right. Uh, slams her purse down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, it's just I don't know. This this brings me back to that era. But alas, in this movie, uh, the the joys of of making new friends at work are interrupted by suddenly some some petty theft. Would that be the word for some it? Petty theft. Yeah. Sure. Go with that. Yeah, some money is stolen from the from the the change bucket in the coffee room. Oh God, I know it's it baffles me that people like like there was a pot of coffee that was made because I didn't join corporate America till I was like twenty eight because of other stuff. So I'm and then there was like a coffee machine like with that. Oh God, it was awful. It was awful. Like the one like with the cup that falls down. And uh-huh. you don't even know what's in that cup, but it's it it's sort of coffee and sort of not. But have you ever worked at a place where there was like pots of coffee? Oh, that's a great question because I've definitely I like, yeah. I I think I yes because in the past when I was when I was in like high school and maybe at some not in college because I had the job at Wegmans but definitely in high school I did temp at like offices like this and I even temped at the same company my mom worked at. I think Ooh, I tempted cool. in college. I tempted the same company my mom worked at, and I would like have lunch with her and all her secretary friends. It was Ooh, the best. It was that's so fun. The best. Uh, and I believe there, there was definitely those coffee pots. There was definitely like the one coffee pot with the orange rim, which was decaf. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 But now it's like it's those. It's those strange coffee machines where you're like, I don't know what's going on in there, but it eventually poops out a little half a paper cup of coffee. And I'm like, well, oh, God, it's that'll do now. Yeah, right. I know my office now has like a Keurig. We've upgraded. We have a new office at like post pandemic, which is super snazzy. And, you know, but yeah, those coffee machines, it's really rough. Right. And it was somebody's job to like make new coffee and to make sure that there is enough and to change the filter or whatever you yeah. do. Like that I think that's something I definitely took away watching this was, you know, the working in an office in the nineties and before that, where you're you're typing things up on a word processor, you're making copies, you're typing up letters, you're stapling things. I mean, I don't I don't do anything not on the computer now. Yeah. Also, all those things sound, I'm sure they would obviously be terrible after like a month. But like, I wish, I wish I could do that. I wish I could just like talk with my gals, staple a couple things and go home. Oh, <laughs> I know. Feels like, it feels like no stress. All you have to do is just type this stuff up. And But yeah, it's it's mindless stuff. So And everything gets old. Right. And and I think, I mean, I can certainly think of past like temp jobs I've had where it was like, you know, put these binders together. So I, at one point I had one, it was a temp job. It was just for like, I think one day and I just stuffed envelopes all day. Whoa. So but I now, did. I mean, I guess you could listen to podcasts now if they allowed you to do it. If they didn't, that would be terrible. But yeah, I'm just trying to think of ways to make it better. But that, that would not be great. Right. I think what happened was I... For the first part of the day before lunch, because it wasn't far from where I lived, I did it like it was I remember it was like in a little conference room and maybe there were like two or three of us each at a table just stuffing these envelopes. And I like was just doing it in silence. And then I brought my 
my CD disc man, my, my with yes. anti skip protection. And I brought that after because I went home for lunch. And I was like, you know what? What are they going to do? Fire me? I'm br- no, I'm, I'm going to stuff these envelopes to a beat. And that's yes. what I did. And it did help. But it was, I mean, that was, that was pre podcasts. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. I, I guess, I don't know. It was, it definitely was a bit of watching them make copies and staple things and, and stuff envelopes. I thought, oh, yeah. You got it. And, and if you're trying to like kill time till five o'clock, it's like you better really like get the fold on that letter right. You know, really take your time oh, with yes. that staple, you know? Yes. God, I was in the office today and we were talking off mic before we recorded like how I, I definitely am more, I'm like the opposite of what people like believe to be true like that like when you're invited back in the office you'll be more productive and like we want you back in the office but i am more productive in the office and i think like no one wants to admit that (laughs) right because it's just more fun to be at home and be uh you know for the most part productive as opposed to just like oh yeah i I, I have nothing else to do but sit here and get stuff done so i'm gonna do that and it feels good but yeah um it's this is all to say too that like the time goes so much slower like at home it like whizzes by Mm -hmm. and and i like i thought it was going to be at least like 3 30 and it was like 12 57 i was like whoa uh so yeah an adjustment yeah absolutely and it's like and when you want to take a break and i and i think you know nowadays when we want to take a break it's like okay well you know i'm just gonna read yahoo news or you know something i feel safe looking at on my work computer yeah right yes but back then what do you look at you know oh yeah nothing i don't even know you read a book i guess right right like under your desk hoping nobody sees i mean there's that whole thing too of when you're in the office there's that sense of you know look busy look busy i mean you know that i i think i read this i was talking about this with one of my coworkers, but i there was a post i saw on reddit of somebody who was relatively new to the corporate world and and they were like so is it like is it normal to not be busy the whole day and should i just like pretend to be busy like what do i do and all the comments were like yeah that's half the job is is looking busy when you're not busy yeah because it's yeah, what I've I've never ha- I've, I've never worked in an office with like the at like the level I'm at right now in this company. Like I worked like customer support with this company like way back in the day, but you were just like chained to your desk taking calls, so there was always something to do. Mm. Um, so I never really had that sort of meandering like time to fill and now i'm at the level where like there's always something on fire so i i i feel i i want to experience that but i could totally understand what that would be like because you're like oh yeah what 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 do i do or how do i you know just shuffle papers around yeah just you know i i feel like what i've done in the past is especially if you have like multiple screens it's like if somebody's walking by it's like opening an excel on the bigger screen and then like looking at it attentively you know and it depends when where your cubicle is like sometimes you would luck out and your cubicle would be like you you would your back would be like at a window or something Mm -hmm. so no one would be able to see but sometimes you like today i had a desk i felt so exposed we have to like reserve our desks and more people were coming into the office, so I didn't get the desk that I wanted, so I had to go somewhere else. And, you know, the CEO is walking behind me, and I'm just like, hey. Yeah, um, just watching TikToks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to cut down, Ken. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just a, the whole world of it. I actually, I was just reading today, you know, we're talking about like looking busy in the office, but I was just reading an article today about, they called it green dot monitoring, which is the idea like if you're working from home, whether you have Slack or Zoom or whatever, there's some like indication that you're online and that feeling, or even people who have managers that are monitoring your green dot to make sure you're online. Oh God. I mean, I, I luckily have not had that, but um, maybe this is the perfect segue to talk about Deborah Jo Rupp. I was just thinking the same thing is, you know, who'd be a real green dot monitor is Barbara. Barbara. And I think this is perfectly cast. I, I feel like it's such a Deborah Jo Rupp role. I feel like I wanted her to be more Deborah Jo Ruppy, but also, you know, she had her job to do. Uh, yeah, she was like the, you know, the the HR manager that we've all met at some point. Or like, I know this woman, whether it's an HR manager or like a head secretary yeah. or whatever. I've I've worked with many Barbaras over the years. Yeah, I mean, just sort of a stickler, but sort of passive aggressive, but, you know, also no nonsense at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I think the perfect example is when they're all stapling those papers, and I think she leans over Jane's shoulder, and she's like, oh, uh, that, you know, keep those staples, you know, horizontal. These are, you know, uh, these are meant to, you know, these are these are professional. These are going to the board or whatever. Yes. Like, one of those little, you know, details of, like, I'm, I'm not sure I like the angle on that staple. And there, uh, people like that, I, I mean, I feel like, it, in the corporate world, they're Barbara. I feel like in like the food service world, it's you know there's so many restaurant managers that are like that. Ew, yes, Lisa Vanderpump. Oh my God, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, a spot on this glass, gloss. Oh. Yeah, people who you could never be doing a good job with. There's always they're either pointing out something you're doing wrong or assuming. Like, I think there was a scene in here where she says. You know, I noticed that you all clocked out early yesterday, so I, I hope that you'll be adjusting your time cards today for oh, that. Yes. Like, just the, the assumption that you're being bad. Yeah, not trusting people to do... I mean, granted, you shouldn't be trusting, especially Margaret, to do their job correctly or, like... But it's... Oh, God. that I feel like that would be exhausting to be Barbara, but I think there are certain people that are... It's, like, the worst people to put in power because mm -hmm. they just go there yeah they they get ownership over this tiny island and all of a sudden they are a dictator of a piece of land yeah it's gross but love deborah joe i mean i mean really i feel like i only know she's great in seinfeld there's a great episode where she's in seinfeld and uh really that 70s show like those are my two points of reference like do you have any more deborah joe rupp debbie joe rupp <laughs> That's Debbie. a good Debbie Joe. Uh, that's a good question because I don't even think we've talked about her on this podcast before. Because yeah. if we had, I feel like I would remember a little Debbie Joe Rupp. Same. Yeah i I don't think I'm looking through her little IMDb. You know, you never know. She was in one episode of NCIS Los Angeles. Maybe that rings a bell. 
for you. Sure. I know you're a big <laughs> NCIS fan. Oh, God. I just like <laughs> my mind immediately. I mean, if you like NCIS, like what you like, folks, but I just can't imagine anything worse. But who knows? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's my, it just feels like a show you watch once you're 60 years old or 55, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's a show I would never watch. I just, I have no interest. I just, imme- the moment I see those initials, I'm like, <laughs> no. Uh, yes. Well, interesting connections. She was in six episodes of Friends. Did she play like Phoebe's mom or something? Oh, you know who it is? And I'm I'm pretty sure I'm getting this right. Phoebe's brother, um, played by what's his face? Um, Giovanni Ribisi? Why do yes, I know that? Why do is, I know that? They're a couple. Giovanni Ribisi and Deborah Jo Rupp are together and they like when Phoebe has the kids, right? So maybe that's not the storyline, but they are dating. And that does sound familiar. It's so interesting because, like, there's an obvious age gap, which is also fine. But I think it's just that I knew. I mean, obviously, that '70s show came out post Friends or during Friends. I don't know the timeline for that either. But, um, yeah, I think that's her her stint on Friends. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. I I wonder if uh, if she and Lisa had a little moment of like, oh, I know you. <laughs> Yeah, right? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that doesn't happen. But I like to believe yeah, know. that when people who've worked together before work together again in random ways, they're like, hey, you were uh, you were on JAG with me. Yes. I mean, Colin, do you know the JAG goldmine that we have in this movie? Wait a minute. I think I do. <gasps> How Dare I forget? Oh my God! Mr. You're... McNamee or whatever his name is, David James Elliott, the lead is in Jag. Jag, the Jag, the yes. Jag off himself. The ultimate were they in Jag is in yes. this movie. Oh my God! I know <laughs> Harmon Harmon Rab Jr. or Rob Jr., which which is uh, was his character in Jag. I was laughing so hard and I was like, oh, I bet you he picked this just for that too. But I'm so glad that it, it, it's a surprise. I it, I I did not fully form. And, and, and here's the thing, folks, if you're like, what's with the JAG stuff? I think we started talking about this during our Grey's Anatomy recaps or it was just sure. of all of the people who were in the show and who guested in it. It just became this, this thing of like, yeah, but were they ever in an episode of JAG? And uh, you or I have not seen... 30 seconds of Jag. I couldn't tell you anything about it. My grandma has. She loves a man in uniform. Oh, she loves, you know, Commander Harmon Rab, which seems like an acronym or an anagram for something. I know. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I, I noticed him and I was like, oh, he's a very handsome man. And I just happened to look him up on IMDb and it was one of the first things that came up and I was just like, oh, wow. Well, that feels really good. Best supporting Jag. Yeah. I just can't believe there were 227 episodes of JAG. People love JAG. People love JAG. Like, the comeback barely squeezed out 16 episodes or whatever over the course of 15 years. And JAG's just been jagging off (laughs) for the better part of a decade with 227 episodes. It's, uh, that's showbiz. That's showbiz for you, right? Like, yeah. if that doesn't tell you about America, that's America. That's America. That is America. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, anyway, so yes, yeah, so Debbie Joe Rupp is is you know best supporting Barbara is the uh, the head green dot monitor in charge of things and absolutely uh, and especially is riled up once once things start to get stolen around the office. Now, 
I don't know if you noticed as we're talking about alums that, but this uh, this larceny is kicked off by the the change in the in the pot in the coffee room, much to the the dismay of accredited coffee lady played by Irene Olga Lopez, who we have in fact talked about before on this podcast. Was she in Stepping Out? She was, I mean, that is a wonderful guess because, I mean, so many people were. She played the neighbor in Erin Brockovich who was babysitting her her kids and then was like, oh, I'm going to move in with my son. He's got a a room for me or whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. She was also, you may remember her from the movie Striptease. Not Striptease, the movie Showgirls. Yeah, Showgirls. Yeah. Showgirl. Who was she in Showgirls? She plays the personnel woman who is interviewing oh, yes. Nomi and she goes, yes. Deceased? Yes. <laughs> and yeah, that's a great scene. Yeah. She's actually been in a ton of things. For a, for a woman who doesn't have an IMDb picture, the, she's got a ton of, she's got 78 actress credits. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Get a picture on there. Yeah. Come on, Irene. Is she, oh, God. Is she dead? Let's see. Irene. No, she's not dead. All not right. dead. Thank God. She also, I don't think she was ever in JAG, so just so you know. Okay, confirmed. Uh, and so uh, in the midst of all this, we also meet uh, Bob Balaban as one of the, you know, uh, corporate, you know, head honchos with an office, Milton Lasky, who Margaret is trying to angle her way into... Uh, getting a recommendation from to hopefully become permanent at this company. A perfect, like a textbook Bob Balaban role, really. Um, Unlikable, but also like funny. Like he pulls everything off, but you just want to punch him in the face too. Oh, it's so like, it's Bob Balaban's wheelhouse. And I loved watching him and Parker Posey interact because it was like, oh, did you guys talk about Best in Show? Yes, I know. (laughs) So many reunions. Right. And waiting for Guffman for that matter. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I mean, he is, I just, it's so interesting too, because this was, I'm assuming, I mean, it, it came out in 97. It's probably meant to be present day 97, but like, just the misogyny of like these men and like get me a cup of coffee go make copies of this is that what happened or is it just because they were temps or both you know i just feel like gosh the 90s man i think it was i mean i think you know it was certainly an extension of what was happening in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s and the 50s and whatnot but it's interesting in the 90s because there's that feeling of like the the era of I don't know. I guess at, at some point the term secretary, I feel like fell out of fashion and it became ex- executive assistant or something like that, you know? Yes. So, uh, but when you're a temp, as Margaret so aptly points out, you're just a corporate orphan. You're not even a part of the company. You're not even a secretary. You're just a yeah. temp. You're nobody. You're not part of the, you know, the family as, as the, as the, you know, Mr. Kilmer says, like, we, you know, we consider you a family here. Uh, and they're not even part of that family. Yeah, the outsiders. Yeah, for sure. You know what I was just thinking uh, on the topic, but not on the topic. I feel like this would be such a great, like a double feature with, um, oh, I want to remember it myself, but I can't. Uh, Uma Thurman and Juliette Lewis. Hysterical Blindness? The movie. Yeah, Hysterical Blindness mm. in a way. I feel like there's similar energies and like, 
how they're sort of just fumbling through their world and trying to come out on the other side. And, you know, Juliette Lewis versus, you know, Parker Posey. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like if I love the idea of of Debbie Miller becoming like the new temp in the office, you know. Oh, at, yeah. At the end when Margaret is fired, like she's replaced by Debbie. Yeah. I mean, it's like two sort of Margaret types, too. It, it would be too much, I feel like they would just both fuel the flames too much yeah you know i i feel like yeah poor little debbie miller like she's because i feel like debbie is sometimes iris and sometimes margaret you know yeah i see that too yeah she tries to be both or she toes that line yep i guess she's actually you know it's interesting you bring that up because i think that debbie miller is actually all four of these women yeah i was gonna say i'm thinking a little lisa kudrow too and like but she wants to have Jane's life. She wants to have the husband and love in her life too. Yeah. And you know, Jane's husband is basically like Rick in hysterical blindness. <gasps> Rick. Rick. Uh, is Rick being there for you and your mom right now? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so you met a guy yeah, with a house. <laughs> yes. Oh, I think about so good. The, I think about that coworker of Debbie's all the time. You met a guy with a house. <laughs> oh God, yeah, that room, that break room. Yeah. Well, and, and again, to your point, it is a really interesting comparison of your little clatch of work friends and having lunch together and having coffee together, and and you kind of form this very specific intimacy around, kind of rooted in working together and as close as you are working together and, and commiserating and like, Oh man, you know, what would they do if they didn't have us or all oh, Mr. So-and-so is, you know, he doesn't care, blah, blah, blah. You know, you kind of have those shared pain points. I know from past experience, cause I've left a lot of jobs or, and I've had a lot of work friends who've left jobs is once you or that other person leaves the company more often than not, that friendship fades. Yeah. Work wives, work husbands. It's, it is a little sad because it's like you spend so much time with these people, but it also like it could just be moving to a different department and staying within the company, too, because that's mm-hmm. happened to me as well. Like, I feel like in this case, too, in Clockwatchers, like Margaret is I don't think she'd be OK with any one of these women getting a promotion besides her unless it is her. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like I I think that she there's no loyalty there, even though it feels like there is. It's she's the one that needs to get ahead, not everyone else. And I feel like she is actually she's actually very smart and she's probably one of the more capable people to, you know, I, like, I feel like she's got the drive. She's I think I think she is she's got street smarts. She's certainly, you know, she's a quick thinker and uh, and she's got like just like a strong I don't know, like she's not she's not as meek as Iris. She's not as deluded as Paula. She's not, you know, as as freaked out all the time as Jane. Like as much as Margaret is a is kind of a I don't know, a live wire. She's a live wire. She's she's got some life to her, you know? Yeah, I mean she's the one that's sort of the unofficial like temp herder you know what i mean she's like well mm-hmm. i guess i'll go probably end up talking to her too and i'll show her the ropes and i'll show her where the filing cabinet is and like she's she's probably been there i feel the longest out of all of them it feels and yeah she would make a decent executive assistant but it's like there's that piece missing where it's like she feels like 
I don't know. It's like she has it figured out, like as RuPaul says on What's the Tea, like the Matrix. And like she she's not like she doesn't subscribe to it. She just she's outside of it because she knows this is all bullshit. But if she cared just a smidge. And I've also known coworkers like this, too, like not quite as like brash as Margaret, too. But like if you just like played the game a little, I think you'd get pretty far. I completely agree. I totally agree. I think she, exactly what you said, she sees that all this is bullshit, and so she doesn't want to apply herself. But And it is a game. It's all a fucking game. I mean, my therapist and I talked about that last week, and she said, it's a game. Sometimes you just have to play the game. And I was like, I know. Yeah. But I also know that the game is bullshit. And I'm not trying to say I'm a Margaret, but I've I've felt like a Margaret at times where I'm like, this is ridiculous. This this stupid game we're playing for what? To push some papers around till five o'clock for what? You know, it I get it. And yet I feel like Margaret is also I've definitely seen this at past jobs I've worked at, but I also feel like you see this a lot like in high school. And I think there's a lot of parallels to these girls feeling like you know, friends in high school where it's that sense of like, you know, this is all bullshit. I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't need, I, I already know in my junior year that I don't need any of what I'm learning right now. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing through the, op, the seeing it all through a different lens too. Yeah. And, you know, I think what really drives that home are those scenes in the bathroom. I mean, her like sitting on the windowsill, smoking a cigarette with her knees up. I yes. need that on a tote bag yesterday i need that on a sheet cake <laughs> so i can eat it and consume it and take it in as my own yes there's cake in the break room yes oh my god oh, that's a whole other tangent is when there's when there's a birthday and there's cake in a break room oh i know there's that one great 30 rock episode where liz is catching up with jack it's the first episode of maybe season four or five and i think it's when um uh, Will Arnett's character, someone takes over for Jack, like Jack gets fired, and she's like, it's like he doesn't even know when um, you, it, he doesn't even know when you should serve cake if someone has a birthday on the weekend, and Jack immediately's like, he's like, I, oh, God, I set this up, and now I can't remember the punchline, it's like, Friday at lunch, and then Liz is like, yes! <laughs> you know, like, she's like, and she's like, ah, oh, see, you know, uh, yeah. but it is important, those, like, stupid it's like pretzel day, you know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. like you look forward to those dumb things because what else have you got look to look forward to? Right, there are these scraps of joy in this otherwise, you know, joyless environment. Yeah, um, and and even like, oh God, like when I worked in customer support, like they would always get us pizza. And I do love pizza, but now it just feels like a slap in the face, you know right. what I mean? With a slice of pizza. Yeah, yeah. it's a greasy yeah. slap in the face. Yeah. There's such a and my mouth pepperoni. is open as I'm getting slapped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just feels so like you can get literally anything else besides pizza. Like try. Get a yeah. sandwich ring. Get something else. Get tacos. Right. <laughs> like, just... Why does it always have to be pizza? That's a great question. I guess I feel like, you know, there's there's a line from The Office where, you know, Michael is getting pizza for everyone. And, and of course, I'm not going to get this perfectly, but you haven't seen The Office, so it doesn't matter. But he says, everybody loves pizza. White people love pizza. Black people love pizza. And then he goes, wait, do black people love pizza? And it's just like, <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, but Lord. I think that those those little joys. I mean, yeah, you're you're sometimes you're doled out a, a a crumb of kindness from HR or you know the party planning committee. But I also think that's where the importance of these 
after work happy hours come in, you know, and the like, oh, yeah. let's all go to this this stupid, you know, uh, you know, bar with booth seating, you know, a, a few blocks away where you buy one drink and then you can have all the buffet appetizers you want. Oh God! I mean, I I was into that buffet though. Oh I'd yeah, all over it. Yeah, I oh, give yeah. me a couple beers and I and I love that. Um, Paula like had a little Tupperware container and was taking some salad home. Yeah. Oh. oh, it was great. I mean, I just I feel like that scene in terms of like scenes to rewatch from that movie. I actually feel like there's so much going on in that scene because it's it's early on for Iris and I, Iris, you know, she's still kind of warming up and and you know, finding her voice with this group and, and finding her place. And I know that feeling as the new person of like, when do I feel safe to be myself? You know? Yeah. And we see, we see Paula in action. We see how she, you know, she'll, she'll take on the, like the, the guys who, you know, come on with the pickup lines and, you know, Oh, careful. Those wings are hot. You know, whereas Margaret will mock him. Paula will politely laugh because it's an opportunity for validation. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's so much to dig up with Paula. I I think she's fascinating. And I what I love about this scene is, you know, she gets the the business card from that guy, Jack, and then she goes over to their table later to make a little chit chat. And then when she walks away, the, the guys that Jack is sitting with, they all are laughing at her. And Margaret at the table, she sees it. And I just love the line delivery of she she says they're laughing at her and she's so disgusted and upset. And it's so a, like women supporting women kind of moment and then yeah. she, you know grabs the, the the business card and says hey jack and then lights it on fire but i i love that because i think as much as we see that margaret is a bit of the alpha of the group and maybe is a little bit of a you know uh indeed a live wire and 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 can be a little brash i think she has a good heart i think what she recognized there was like oh no you're not going to humiliate my friend yeah he's you're too good for him or something or you can do better i can't remember which is what something she also says to, about jane or to jane about her fiance too oh that's right yeah yeah which you know and it's like we what we know of margaret's life is that she just has a roommate who she never sees because the roommate's a flight attendant and we don't yeah. hear about anyone else in her life and so i feel like what i imagine is that as quote unquote alpha as Margaret is at work. She's actually very lonely in her life. Yeah, I think so too. It's interesting. I was just thinking about like this group, like Iris. I think there's something like you're bound together with these people. And like you were saying too, in your early twenties, like this happened to me as well. Like the first time when I around in, in my company, when I worked in like customer support and we had like a training class and we all would eat our lunch together. But slowly it's like, unless you find that one person, which like sometimes that doesn't happen. Like it's like there's nothing worse than like being forced to hang out in a group of people that you like you don't feel you feel a connection, but it's not a deep connection. But you kind of have to keep doing it because it's too awkward to be like, I'm going to go eat lunch with these people now. Um, and I feel like Iris like I wonder if she like I think that's what she slowly realizes too is like that these women are not, I don't want to say not what she thinks they are but like is everything sort sort of falls apart like she has to be friends with Margaret because Margaret's like the bossy sort of Regina George of the group too and like she's I think she's the least close with like Jane but I think her and Paula could have been like I don't know cuz they ride the bus together you know they have that the, the most like 
you know, they can sit by each other on the bus too. I think they could have had the the best shot at being friends, but that also yeah. faded too. Yeah, I you know, and it's funny because she meets Paula technically first in the copy room, in oh, the copy yeah. room, yeah, and so like Paula is technically her, you know, her first you know connection of this group, and I love when then. Margaret brings her to lunch and there's this very little micro moment of like Paula and Iris and Paula being like, Oh, Hey, you know, like, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't even have to say it, but it's like, Oh, I know you from the copier room. Yes. Yes. It's cute. Now let's, you mentioned the bus. Cause I think one of my favorite scenes in this movie is the bus scene. Uh, when, uh, I think this is when they're, I don't know if this is when they're coming home from the happy hour or this is just some night of them coming home from work. But, Paula is demonstrating her face acting for Iris. Yes. And it really, I mean, in so many ways, it's Muriel and Valerie on the bus together because Iris is just kind of like swallowing her word. She's like, happy? You know, like she's just like in guessing what what facial expressions Paula's doing. Yes. Oh, it's so good. I love it. And I it. think, is the, is the last one like fear or scared or something? And oh. like just that sort of like fear. Yeah, yeah, it's fear. <laughs> That's the best part is when she was like, it's fear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. and then pulls out the headshot and, and you know, it's just, it, there's so much, oh my God, Lisa Kudrow is doing everything in this moment because there's so yeah. many little things happening with like her eyes widening and her face like changing as she talks about, you know, I just know it's going to happen. I've always known since I was young, like it, something's going to happen for me and you can just see the machine working overtime to convince her that this is true. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I would have, I mean, I paid enough attention to her cause I'm always loving Lisa Kudrow, but I would, I would do a rewatch just for her. It, it's and so like her outfits. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, I feel like she's in such debt. Like I feel like she's in credit card debt up to her elbows and like just buying new outfits and then spilling stuff on them. Mm-hmm. It's just like such a representation of, everything that's going on yeah and she is um she's older than the other three i I think she's older than parker posey as well and so like in my kind of filling in the gaps of who these women are maybe she's closer to parker posey's age but like i like i also think it's interesting that paula is you know she's a an aspiring actress in la who's on the north side of 30 isn't cast you're only getting cast in anything is is projecting these these ideas that she's, you know, got a role in something and then it fell through and then rehearsals are going to start soon. And like just telling all of these sort of Blanche Dubois stories about her life. And in reality, yes, yeah, she probably also goes home to an empty apartment, you know, uh, and and the truth. I think all of them, you know, kind of go home to the the sad realities of what their lives are. Yeah, it's so I mean everything about work feels so performative in a way. Like I was in the office today and like a lot of like the higher ups go in on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I, you know, I'm sort of like jumping in line and and just like, you know, playing the game a little Mm -hmm. bit too, to get to know. And like a lot of people know me from my time with the company before too. So, but there is like, I don't know, just the dynamics. Like I literally stood up at one point and saw two, they're they're like above VPs. I don't even know what their positions are, but they're literally just walking in and out of this office with like scratching their chins and like furrowing their brows and just like really thinking deep. And I'm like, oh, 
it just felt comical in a way because mm-hmm. that's like I'm like what do you guys do all day and they do solve problems because I I, I know one of them pretty well too and they're doing uh, 80,000 things but it's just so funny everyone plays their role everyone is doing corporate drag and it's just so interesting to watch oh I know I I, I witness it now with this job and and just the even even the why are you why are you hustling to get to a meeting that is just internal like what's what's the rush you know what what's the there's so much intensity there's so much intensity and and it really is just kind of like being on a stationary bike you're not going anywhere you're just working up a sweat you know so much talk about golf oh I'm on these calls and like I don't have anything to contribute and there's enough people on the call where I can just sort of, you know, disappear or, you know, we don't have to be on camera or something too, but I'm just like, and like, God bless the, you know, the women on these calls that are like my age and sometimes a little younger than like, that say like, oh, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to take up golfing, Steve, you know, like maybe I'll see you out on that course. And I'm just like, oh God. But yeah, again, playing the game. Yeah. Like playing the game and like in the same way that that there is that sense that Margaret in this group is the alpha and there's a sense of code switching or kind of dancing to her beat i feel like that happens at those levels as where as well as like maybe based on seniority at the company that that you know that senior person kind of establishes the beat of the conversation and everybody dances to it you know everybody yeah. pretends to show interest in golf because you know rick golfs you know yep it's uh God, golf. Yeah. Anyway. Um, you know, we haven't talked about Helen Fitzgerald as Cleo, who Let's. is the the new assistant hired, uh, who uh, is, is not played by this. I blew my mind. I insisted that this was played by the same woman who played Jean in Drop Dead Gorgeous, the little meek uh, woman who works with uh what's his name uh mr lehman lester lehman at the at the restaurant uh the furniture store oh i'm i'm I, it's slowly coming together it's been a moment Let and she's one of the up. judges for the pageant as well and she it's the same body language it's the same like hair you know pulled back hair and glasses and kind of hunched <laughs> yes. over yes she doesn't have an imdb picture that's so funny but i'm looking her up um but yes i fe- i felt like this actress was six different actresses i could not place her but she was none of the actress actresses who I thought she was. So yeah, there we and are. she was not in Drop Dead Gorgeous because that character was played by Lona Williams, who wrote the script for Drop Dead Gorgeous. So it definitely wasn't her. Um, but you oh, know, wait, she's not in Drop. Oh, it's she's not. not. Yeah, sorry. So she's oh, not. No. So it's yes. not her. It's not I was Helen. Like, wait, who? Uh, but you know, Helen is interesting. I, I felt so bad for her. She had such like, a Carrie White quality, where it was like, oh, she just. You know, she'd come up to Iris's desk and be like, I like your blouse, you know, and and I feel like because of Margaret, Iris and Jane and Paula all had to reject Cleo because, you know, Cleo got the job that Margaret wanted. Very Stassi Schroeder there. Oh, it's my birthday. Yes. She's a whore bag. Um, I, I agree. It's like because everyone's reaction, I think... Uh, you know, I feel that Iris has just like a neutral sort of reaction, like, but still standoffish. She doesn't say anything. She doesn't smile back. She's just kind of like, I don't know what to say or do. So I'm just going to stare at you right now. Yeah. 
until you know and you know spoiler for a movie from 1997 until we we at least discover and iris discovers that it's cleo who has been rampantly stealing you know uh wallets and a shoe and umbrellas and the scarves the, yeah. the scarf debbie joe rupp's scarf the the c in the in the the company logo at the front desk. I mean, it's been Cleo this whole time. And I think what's really interesting is because Iris follows Cleo home one rainy day. And I, I love Iris. She's got, she's got the lipstick on and the sunglasses and she's got her raincoat over her head. Oh, she looks so beautiful. Yeah. I really, I feel like she, I feel like these shots and I, I don't know for sure, but it reminds me of some, uh, very sort of iconic shots from a movie called Double Indemnity, which is a, a film noir oh. from the 40s. And I, there, I feel like there's shots of Barbara Stanwyck with sunglasses on, you know, mm. spying on somebody. And it just felt very much like that. Yeah. But, you know, Iris follows her home and sees her with her little ducky umbrella, you know, that she stole yes. from Iris. And in comparison to the sad little lives that we've seen of Margaret and we've seen Jane's apartment at her little bridal shower. And we know that, you know, Tony Collette lives in a house, but you know, it's just her by herself. Cleo lives in a mansion and has a maid who greets her at the door and collects her umbrella for her. Yeah. What is the story there? I don't know. I thought that was so, because I guess I, I would assume it's almost like I to look at Cleo, I would assume, okay, you have a life much like Iris. I mean, in, in many ways, Cleo and Iris are very similar. Yeah. You know, kind of meek, kind of quiet. Uh, yep. But I think what's interesting about Iris is, you know, who as the movie progresses, we hear, we hear more come out of Iris's mouth, but she's very quiet for the first part of the movie, but she's also narrating the movie. And so that's true. We kind of are always hearing who the real Iris is compared to who the Iris in the office is. And it just makes me wonder who's the real Cleo. I know it almost feels like some sort of social experiment that like some rich person would do. Like I'm going to get an office job and I'm going to steal shit. And I love that she stole the C C for Cleo. Yeah. It's like, I think there's that one line of Iris. It's like, maybe all these clues, like everything she's stealing, it tells a story or it like is linked together. And I don't know if they are, but, and that's the only thing I could really think of off the top of my head. But um, it's very interesting because the whole time, like the red herring is that you think that it's, um, it's Margaret because she stole the rubber band ball from that guy. And that little, what was it, like a little hanging monkey or something? Or what was the little plastic thing that was on it was a Iris's little, cup? Yeah, it was a little, you know, green little plastic monkey that was hanging on Iris's cocktail at that first happy hour. And then what I thought was really interesting was that then she, you know, after Margaret gets fired, then Iris discovers that, oh, the little green monkey that she saw, you know, on Margaret's desk or in her drawer was just one that Margaret had because the one Iris had had just fallen into her pencil cup. Yes, and so I thought there was an interesting connection there because I think at the beginning of the movie, Iris is more of a Cleo, but then after Margaret gets fired, I think Iris kind of turns into a Margaret. Yeah, and a little bit of Paula. And, and a little, little bit of, of Paula. Yeah, yeah, she kind of takes some of that, but, I, but she, you know, once she discovers that Cleo is the thief, she, uh, you know, she goes into, he goes to her desk and, and, you know, slaps down a post that says, I want my notebook back. And then there's that great scene in the cafeteria because 
Cleo, you know, bought the same sweater that Iris was wearing. It seems like she had changed her glasses to be similar to what Iris has. And so Iris gets her silent revenge in the cafeteria when she sits down across from Cleo and first she burns the notebook that Cleo stole and then she starts to lay out the same lunch that Cleo has. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it was like cubes of cheese, water crackers, and like an apple juice. And it's so great the way she like slaps down the crackers and they kind of all break a little bit. Like the the cracker acting in this. Yes, yes. The cracker acting. And it's, I, I feel like it's, it's so smart because it's it, it it's such a passive passive aggressive and also directly aggressive way of confronting Cleo of like oh you're gonna you're gonna copy me you're gonna steal from me like two can play this game and yeah and it's a little sad because like maybe Cleo just wanted to fit in you know yeah I I'm so interested in her because you don't really find out too much, but you find out just enough, but uh, enough to keep you wanting more details. Yeah. And then, and then they have kind of like, Iris is the only one who knows it was Cleo. And so like, they also have this kind of this bond of like, I'll, I know I'll always know that you were. The yeah. Thief. Yeah. If I were Cleo, I'd get out of there, but I guess she really can't quit either. Yeah. I mean, but, she doesn't uh, need the job clearly, but I know. Yeah. And, you know, and I think kind of what we were talking about is that by towards the end of the movie, you know, obviously Margaret gets fired and then Jane leaves and Paula gets transferred to accounting. And in, and like already their friendships were kind of fracturing. I think the the paranoia and the suspicions of, of who was the you know, who was stealing things and probably also just the fact that Margaret was kind of a, a toxic bond between the four of them. Uh, they all started to drift anyway. But now it's like. Iris is never going to see Jane again. And even she might, I think she runs into Paula sometimes in the copier room, but it's probably like, Oh, Hey, Hey, but that's it. Yep. Yeah. It's just, it's such a weird, but relatable feeling, you know, cause you quit jobs, you get promoted, you, you know, people leave and you have to just kind of pick up the pieces of that dynamic that you once felt and, and maybe realize that it wasn't really, I don't want to say real because it was real. Like it was, it was fun, but it it's changed and they're all sort of growing up and realizing, you know, because there's that subplot of Iris getting that other job that her dad wants to get her, her to get like that, the job in sales, which she ends up not getting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think too, cause before I know we're like nearing the end of the episode here, cause I think one of the, I think one of the coolest things that happened is, you know, the whole time Margaret wants a recommendation. She's inching her way up and um, sidling up to Mr. Lasky. Is that his name? Lasky? Yeah. And Bob, who played by Bob Balaban, who ends up passing away. So she can never get that recommendation, which I thought was kind of funny in a way, too. I thought that was a clever way of just like, you know, such a Margaret thing to happen. But in the end, Iris goes up to Mr. McNamee. Uh, played by David James Elliott, Jag, Jag himself, Mr. Jag, yeah. and says, "I'm today's my last day." Because um, we know that it's her last day. She tells us that you know in her little uh, voiceover, it's from the beginning too. But can, I, I wrote a letter of recommendation, or can you write me a letter of recommendation? I actually have something uh, that I wrote. I just need you to sign it, and Margaret's name is on it, and not Iris's. And she mails it to her, and I thought that was really sweet. 
I love that. I thought that was yeah. really, you know, because I, I, I think ultimately Iris recognizes like Margaret didn't, she didn't do anything wrong. And in the grand scheme of things, like I would always be grateful to the person who reached out and made friends with me when I was new at work. Yeah, I agree. And it's like, it's the one thing that she has control of. Because I do think that Iris knows she's going to be okay, uh, you know, wherever she was heading. And mm -hmm. that, you know, now she knows about Cleo and that Margaret didn't do anything except just be a little, you know, difficult at times. But um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's uh, it's a nice conclusion without ever seeing them have a scene together again. And like maybe Margaret never contacts her and never says thank you and maybe she doesn't have a way to but it's just this sort of you know here's a little something for you i it makes yes. me feel good for margaret because i did feel bad for as, as much as margaret was a bit of a you know a bit of a pill i i like a margaret i like a margaret yeah i i know that margaret energy for sure i i, I mean she had an epic um exit too from the office i loved it I love a good oh, office yeah. meltdown. Oh yeah. Um, oh, you think I'm your little office thief? You know, with her yes. hands up, with her little plaid skirt and those little clogs. Ugh. Oh, yeah. to be oh to be in the '90s and to be able to dress like that. I guess I could do it. I could I could dress like that whenever I want. But yeah, it just looked better in 1997. It did. So you had mentioned at the top of the episode that you had a favorite character. Who was your favorite character? I did. I'm like me, me. <laughs> you said, yeah, because I think I had mentioned, you know, I quoted Margaret in my little opening line. You're like, oh, she's great. Not my favorite character, but I love Margaret. Oh, I see. I see. Gotcha. I mean, I would say it was. It would probably be Paula. I think it would be Paula. It's like I. I th think at the beginning of this episode, it probably was Iris, but it probably at the end of the episode is Paula moving forward as well too. Especially because I think I just needed to talk it out. I'm always gonna love Tony Collette, and I like the transformation of Iris from where she starts to where she kind of, you know, from the very last time she's with Mister Jag in that office getting Margaret's recommendation. I feel she had the biggest transformation, but I feel like Paula has the most layers if that makes sense mm -hmm. so a combo of the two i'd say yeah i think paula is my favorite as well i really i mean i love all of them but i feel like you know there's so many moments the bus scene i love but i think the moment paula became my queen was when they were at jane's bridal shower and she started eating those doritos in the kitchen <laughs> yes and i was yes. like yeah no paula you're you know you're a real one right there yeah yeah and she like hands them off to Iris or something. She's like, here, take these. Oh, I love that. I love that little scene in the kitchen. I love people arguing in a kitchen in the 90s. Yeah, it seemed very like loosely uh, like blocked. And that mm -hmm. it, it, it was just like, you know, just just go in there and see what happens. It was yeah. it was fun. Jill let them play. <laughs> That's right. That's Jill. Jill. Jill directed and she co-wrote this with her sister, Karen. <laughs> yeah, Karen. Karen. Um Clock watchers, uh, you know, the last thing I'll say is, you know, the final shot in the movie is is Iris basically waiting for five o'clock. And then, you know, the, the clock hits five o'clock and she looks up and looks directly into the camera. And just like the look on her face and the way the hair falls in front of her face, I was like that, that like perfectly encapsulates the energy of the independent film channel at this time. Like that sums up, I think, why this made its way into my catalog many years ago. 
Yes, very unexpected ending, and I know that's you know that's that's your poison or no? What am I trying to say? That's um, my Achilles heel. My there it is. You know, yeah, yeah. Tonight, one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love a <laughs> poison. That's my poison. <laughs> oh, I just <laughs> I hate it. Uh, but yeah. no, I I I do love. I do. I love the significance of like a you know a, a cut to black moment like that. So, yes. Um, yeah. But indeed, you know, as a as a you know, at the moment, a clock watcher myself, uh, I, I say with a mix of pride and shame, I deeply love this movie. I feel like this is a movie that I have and will continue to revisit regularly, and I highly recommend you do the same. The bus scene is on YouTube, so if you don't have oh nice the full hour and thirty six minutes in you, you can just watch the bus scene. Yeah, I think that's a perfect substitute until the next time, until I get my second dose of Paula. Yeah, yeah. Uh, until it's time to watch the clock. The clock. Yeah. No, I think we're, <laughs> I think we, we we are definitely being played off. I think that was the, that was the the moment. Um, it's quitting time. Yeah. It's quitting time. It's time to put our punch cards in the little machine and you know head over to happy hour for those hot wings. Ooh, sounds delicious. Uh, till then, where can folks find more of you? They can find me on my other podcasts, The Good Vanilla, which is a Barefoot Contessa podcast. Or if you need a voiceover project completed, uh, go over to nkvoiceover.com. And you can also find me on Instagram at Nick Kachanov. How about you? Well, you can continue to find me on All Right Mary every week, where we're putting out some in-betweeny episodes before All Stars 8 starts in like a week or so. Uh, you can, yeah, it's, I'm, I actually am excited. This cast is, uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Yes. So uh, I, you can find me on Instagram at Colin Drucker underscore. And of course, you can find uh, more of both of us in a best supporting capacity on Instagram at BSA Pod. Or you can send us an email at thebsapod at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, keep your peepers peeled because uh, it'll be five o'clock before you know it. And that is when the best supporting after show will be out, which is actually going to be on Friday, not at five o'clock. But more importantly, the best supporting after show is coming. I know I have some feelings about beef that I need to talk about. All right. So we got beef. beef. Uh, I think we'll probably talk about some somebody somewhere. We've got some best supporting assignments. We've got BSAs the week. So, you know, if you want all that and more and early access to episodes just like this, you can join us at ba- patreon.com slash BSA pod. Sounds like a party. All right. Well, it's time for you and I to get into our pre-owned lease Toyota Tercels named Ruth and Cheryl and get the hell out of here. Uh, but until then, that, as they say, is that. <laughs> <laughs>